is good to be back while you're turning to Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to be put in today, Luke chapter 19. I have something to say to my brother Craig. He said, well, I actually have a question and then I have a comment about what he said because you said some really nice things about me. I just hope that any one of them might be a little bit true. Um, and the question I have for you is, will you do my eulogy at my funeral? And very green, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's 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 the question I have is if you do my uh, if you do my eulogy. But the comment that I have is really what I had reference to at, at one decent pastor about the breath of fresh air. Is it coming up from Arizona? Certainly, the environment up here is the breath of fresh air. But what I had particular reference to was sitting under Pastor Chad's sermon last Sunday, uh, where I heard the gospel. I don't know. I lost how many times I heard it, but it was it was a bunch. It's just to hear the gospel laid out again and again and again, different ways, different angles, but always the gospel. That was a breath of fresh air. So, this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about parables, and I understand that uh, you have been uh, studying parables. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Pastor Chad was preaching one last week, but we're going to be in a different book, but looking at a parable. And everybody has their own description of what a parable is. Um, there's different takes on it, but I like the one that Bible teacher uh, Warren Wearsby uses uh, in describing what a parable is. He says parables are mirrors that become windows. They're mirrors that become windows. They're mirrors in that in parables we see ourselves and they're windows in that we can see truth and things about who God is and the way he is through the parables. Um, and, and parables often expose and correct the wrong ideas uh, the wrong assumptions, the wrong intuitions that we have about God. Let me give you an example of that. Luke 19, everybody knows the parable of the um, prodigal son, right? Well, as Jesus was telling this story uh, in front of the Pharisees, um, they expected that when this son that had dissed on his father, taken his wealth, gone away, wasted it on riotous living and all that kind of stuff, when he came back, that he was going to get it from God. But to their surprise, in this parable, the father runs out to see him and to greet him and to lavish love on him. See, their, their intuition, their, their assumptions about who God is were wrong. And oftentimes, our assumptions about who God is and what he is like and, 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 and even ourselves are somewhat distorted. And parables have a unique way of clearing that up. Parables are stories. And Jesus, as the master teacher, understood really well that, you know, what somebody later kind of put into a, a phrase, and it's like this. Jesus understood this, and he used it long before this man ever said it. Give me the facts, and I'll learn it. Give me the truth, and I'll believe it. But tell me a story, and it will live in my heart forever. So this parable, by God's grace, is a story that will live in our hearts forever. 
So read with me, or follow with me, if you will, uh, Luke 19, 11 through 27. Now, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went away to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave to them ten minas. And he said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that they might know, so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, "Master, your mina has made ten minas more." And he said to him, "Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities." The second came, saying. Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does, not, what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Now, this is a very practical parable for a number of reasons. One is because it, it, it addresses a human tendency that people act in their own interests, or what they think is going to be their own interests. I had a boss a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I think it was back in the 70s, that told me uh, one thing he said, uh, we were having lunch one time, he said, Terry, something like this, uh, Terry, most people do what they do in order to gain a benefit or avoid a loss. And if you think about that, that's true. Whether you really understand what will benefit you or not, you do what you think will benefit you. And the other reason this is very practical because everyone in this parable experiences a gain or a loss. And there's three kinds of people in this parable. Faithful slaves, a faithless slave, and the enemies of the king. You are portrayed in this parable. Everyone in this room is to be found in this parable. Everyone in this city is to be found in this parable. Everyone in the world fits into one of these categories in this parable. 
So this parable is given to teach us exactly what to expect on the return of the king so that you'll know how to prepare for his coming. Just like um, in the parable, this, this, this parable removes all the guesswork, the speculation, and the surprises about what is in store for you. Whether you're a faithful servant of God, a faithless servant, or an enemy. And it does it in graphic detail. Now, all the buzz, uh, you know, that was prompting this story was about was anticipation about when the kingdom was going to come. You know, they were all expecting the kingdom. But the focus here is not about the when, but about the what to do in preparation for his coming. Just like the parable of the ten virgins, it's about preparedness. Now, we have preppers all around us. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're uh, uh, listening to uh, a certain news network and they're talking about buying uh, Patriot food supplies, you know, in case all, all the wheels fall off and the bottom falls out. You know, you're going to have food. That's, that's pre 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 preparation. Or whether you're listening to William Devane on Fox News tell you that you need to buy gold from Roslyn Capital in preparation for the crash of the currency. There is a preparation mentality that says to get ready for what you think is coming. And Jesus makes it explicit here what is coming. Could not be in more clear detail. And it's very similar, this parable, to another parable about preparation and stewardship in Matthew 25. But, but there are a couple of noteworthy differences that will help us interpret this parable. So bear with me for just a minute. I don't want you to look at it now. You can look at it later. In Matthew, in, in this parable, each slave is given the same amount. There's ten slaves, ten minas. Each one got the same amount. In the, in the talent parable that we find in Matthew 25, um, each slave is given a different amount according to their abilities. In the talent parable, in Matthew 25, and when the accounting time comes, the slaves say, Master, I have gained more talents. But in this parable, the slaves say, Master, your mina has gained more. You see the difference? There are more differences than these in these two parables, but these are the ones that we're going to focus on. So what are we to make of this? What We could ask ourselves the question of, and, and that is, what is it that, that Christians, what is the one thing that all Christians have in the same measure? And that's the gospel. We differ in gifts and capabilities, but the one thing that we have in common is the gospel by which we came to Jesus Christ, by which we saved, by which we stand, and by which we hope in glory. That's something that is universal for every Christian everywhere all the time. Moreover, Jesus, like the master in this parable, on his departure, commanded disciples to do business with his gospel. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe and, and all of that. You know that Jesus gave them a commission. He gave them a deposit 
before he left. And again in Acts 1.8, when the uh, disciples were still asking, Lord, is it now that the kingdom is going to come? Is it now? When is it? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He gave them the deposit and sent them out with his authority. slaves understood in the final analysis that it was the gospel not their not not their business acumen that drew the increase they said look master your mina has given five more it's the gospel that gets the job done in colossians 1:16 paul says the gospel he describes it this way the gospel which has come to you just as in also in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has, it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. So it's the gospel that's in view here. And with that in mind, let's look a little further into this parable. The nobleman, it says, went to a distant country to receive a kingdom. Well, he receives a kingdom, but a king. Now, Jesus was not recognized as a king, but Jesus' life is bracketed uh, in, uh, as a king. You remember the wise men came from the east, and they said, we have come to worship who? He who has been born king of the Jews. And on the other end of Jesus' life, nailed to the cross, was what? Jesus, king of the Jews. But he was not received as a king. But he has received the kingdom in heaven. He went away to heaven and has received that kingdom. Matthew 26, 24, when Jesus was being um, questioned by the chief priests in the night before he was crucified, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourselves. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Psalm 110, Messianic Psalm. Where, where God says to the, the Lord says to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is obviously a parable about the return of Jesus. So there was a, a deposit entrusted to each slave. Each slave was given one mina, which is about four months wage. That's a considerable slave, uh, a considerable sum for a slave to be walking around with. So you have to ask the question, why is the nobleman entrusting his wealth to common slaves? That's unusual, to say the least. But it had to represent an incredible opportunity and responsibility to the slaves. This master is unusual. And notice, please, that this parable begins with the master giving. He's giving. But the giving comes with a command and a promise. Do business with this until I come. They receive authority to do business with the master's mina. Now each servant had the same deposit which most surely represents the message of the gospel. They were entrusted with it. 
Paul writes to Thessalonians, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Again, in uh, 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul says, I've been entrusted with the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, Timothy, guard the gospel with which you've been entrusted. Our gifts and our abilities are different, but our job is the same. To share the word of God so it multiplies and fills the world. That's where it's going because that's where God said it's going. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Now, the bulk of this parable is about each slave's response to the command of their master, particularly the third worthless slave. But we also notice first that, that, that they're they were serving their master or left to serve their master in a hostile environment. The nobles, citizen, the nobleman's citizens hated him. They even sent a delegation after him, complaining, we don't want this guy to reign over us. And it was to this crowd and in this crowd and in this environment that the nobleman gave his servants the commission to deposit, to serve him. Doing business on their master's behalf would encounter opposition and persecution. And that's the reality for all who will serve Christ. The world hated me, he said, and it's going to hate you also. Visibly doing the master's business will bring hostility. In the world you will have persecution, Jesus said. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, we wish that obedience to the master wouldn't cost, but it does. We wish that it wouldn't hurt, but it will. But this parable illustrates the incomparable, disproportionate, eternal worth of doing the king's business, even at the cost of suffering. Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Not even comparable. Well, first we have a command. A command. Do business with gifts. And a promise. Till I return. What's your first reaction when you hear a command or when you read a command or when you think about a command because it's very important your your first reaction because our God's commandments are for our benefit they address our weaknesses and you, you notice they do address things that we don't do well for instance the commandment is to love your neighbor which we struggle with the commandment isn't love yourself. We got that one. But the commands always address our weaknesses and they are for our benefit. We're reminded in Psalm uh, 19 where it says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, 
you know, and, and on all of those things about the law of the Lord and how blessed it is and all of those things. And at the conclusion of this, it says, moreover, about the commandments of God, by them, your servant is warned. That is, he's given a heads up that in keeping them, there is great reward. Do you think about commandments that way? As addressing things that you're weak in, that you need help with? Because when God commands us in these things that we're weak in, we have to press into him in order to do them. We, have, we don't have the power within ourselves. So it drives us, draws us, brings us to dependence on God. But it also is an avenue of great blessing. I wonder if you think about it that way or you think about it the way the third slave did. Because when he, it's obvious that to this command, um, the slave was thinking, uh-oh, you know, this, this is not going to bode well for me. And if your thinking is like the third slave, you're off to a bad start because it kind of pits you and God as adversaries. But, but the commandments are for a blessing. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. When you hear God's commandments, think weakness requiring his strength so that we'll press into him and think blessing and reward. But that's not what the third slave thought. He thought, uh-oh, oh no. You know, we're not really told at all about the attitude of the first two slaves because the focus of the parable really is on the third slave's attitude. But whatever attitude these first two guys had, uh, they resulted in obedience to the master's commands. They must have believed that he was repaying his king. They must have believed that there would be an accounting for their stewardship because they obeyed. And obedience is the product of faith and love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And obedience is also the proof of what we say we believe and, and sometimes there's such a huge disconnect, we don't even get that. Jesus asked his disciples one time a, a really rhetorical question that I'm not sure any of them could ever answer, but he said this, he posed this, he says, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things I say? This parable also shows that our obedience or disobedience begins with our view of God and what we believe to be true about him. The beliefs of the first two, whatever they were, they must have been correct because they obeyed. But what about the third slave? He was suspicious of his master. That I knew you to be, listen to what he said, I knew you to be an exacting man. The word is austeros in Greek, from which we get austere, stern, demanding. He erroneously thought, this third servant, that his master was selfish with no concern for the servant. You know what he thought? 
He thought something that you and I often think. He thought God was a taker. That God's a taker. Not a giver. And you know, that's the biggest lie in the world. When you talk to people that don't know the Lord, and sometimes hard communications, they believe that God wants something from them. That God is demanding something from them instead of wanting to give. But what does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world that he demanded they straighten up and fly right. Or does it say God so loved the world that he gave? His parable starts with the message of Jesus. You know, we don't intuit God so well. We don't imagine what he's like because we see God through our sin and our guilt and so forth. There's only one place that we can get a right view of God to understand God the way he is and that is, that is by reading his self-revelation of himself and his word that, that portrays him, that describes him, that reveals him the way he really is. And when Christians don't read their Bible, their assumptions, their intuitions, and even the, the attitudes about the world around them corrode and corrupt our view of God. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. Nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. You know, the third slave likely doubted even whether the master would return. It's, it's clear with the whole handkerchief thing like this, right, that, that he secured the, man, the mina in case the master returned instead of using it in anticipation that he would return. And it all had to do with the way he viewed the master. How do you view the master today? Is he trustworthy? Is he a giver? Is he a rewarder? Is he austere and demanding? Not only did the third slave misunderstand his master, he also misunderstood the power of what the master had given him to do business with. The other two servants realized it, that it was the master's mean and not their business skill that, that yielded the results. So it is with the gospel. I mean, the gospel says that it's the power of God unto salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that what, you, that what the master has given you, what he has entrusted with you, the deposit that he has given all of us as Christians, is powerful to salvation, to everyone who believes? Do you believe that? You say that you respect and treasure the gospel. Notice the third slave was respectful of the mina. He didn't just toss it to the side. Oh, no. He wrapped it in a handkerchief. He was very respectful of it. 
He put it in a handkerchief. He was careful to preserve the mina, but it was given him not to preserve, but to propagate, to save. And, and, and he put it in a handkerchief to save, but it wasn't given to save. It was given to spread. And so it is with many of us. We carefully guard what we believe about the gospel. And that's important. And we internalize it. But also in the process of internalizing it, we kind of shrink wrap it. Maybe you left your shirt clothes. You don't believe in the power of what we've been given. Do you consider that the gospel, maybe I think what this third plague did, is, is fragile and really isn't able to bring life to a dead world? Do you believe that it really can't overcome the opposition? Do you and I believe that, that it's fragile and weak and not able to accomplish kingdom business? Or do we believe that it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes? Do we believe that it's really by our actions, do we believe that it's impotent? Or do we believe that the gospel will accomplish everything, everything that it was sent to do, like Isaiah 55 says. Jesus, God declares in Isaiah 55, he says, my word which, uh, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Do you believe that? I think this uh, third plague didn't. I think it's obvious by his actions. Are you faithful with the gospel that the master has entrusted you? The preppers all around us today are preparing for what they believe is coming, right? Thomas Brooks, you, you often hear from this pulpit, I'm sure you do at the other one too, uh, a Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon's probably the most quoted guy uh, here, right? Okay. Well, you know who the guy is that Spurgeon quotes more than anybody else? It's Thomas Brooks. He's a, he was a Puritan. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon put together a book uh, of uh, Thomas Brooks quotes, and he called it Smooth Stones from Ancient Books. Yeah. So this is what Thomas Brooks had to say about our stewardship with the gospel and preparation vis-a-vis the way that the world prepares for what they believe is coming. He said this, and he called it the saint's shame. He says, oh, do you be ashamed, Christian, that worldlings are more studious and industrious to make sure with pebbles than you are to make sure of pearls. Faithful servants gained both the meanest and were granted rulership over ten cities. One, ten cities and one, five. This is a, I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing that is just like, huh? I mean, it's so disproportionate it sticks out like the nose on my face. I mean, it's just there. It's big. The reward in a little thing, he rewards them with the, the, the stewardship or rulership of ten cities and five cities. 
This has got to be so that we realize that God is a rewarder. A lavish rewarder. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Because get this, God rewards us lavishly for what he gives us that actually gets the job done. He gives it to us and then rewards us for it? Really? It's like God is looking for ways to reward faithfulness lavishly. But this third slave lost even the meaning he had was given to the slave who had been faithful. Now, we don't think about a judgment or accountability much in the Christian life. It's just kind of like, well, poof, you know, we're going to be in heaven and on a cloud or, or whatever. But it, again, misconceptions, wrong intuitions, wrong assumptions, because Jesus said there will be a judgment. There will be an accounting. Count on it. It's a basic principle of the Christian life that wasted opportunities means loss of reward and possibly loss of the privilege of service. If we don't use the deposit God gives us under his direction, why should we even have them? Somebody else can make better use of them and those gifts for the glory of God. You know, and this is not a one-off here. There's, there's two other places in Scripture that clearly say the same thing. In Matthew 13, 12, Jesus says, For to whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Spurgeon said, It is always so. The gracious and faithful man obtains more grace and more means of usefulness, while the unfaithful man sinks lower and lower and grows worse and worse. We must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. There's no such thing as standing still in religion. One commentator put it this way. I thought it was helpful. The more labor you have put forth for the kingdom of heaven, the more degrees of glory you shall have. As there are degrees of torments in hell, so of glory in heaven. As one star differs from another in glory, so shall one sinner. Though every vessel of mercy shall be full, yet one may hold more than another. Can you imagine how the news of the king's return impacted that third slave? See, the king's back. Imagine that. Shame, fear, guilt. And I have to ask, because this parable asks us to ask, will you be ashamed of his coming? The Bible says some will be. The Apostle John writes it this way, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, the shame doesn't come from not trusting Christ as our Savior, but rather 
and not doing more for Christ when we have the opportunity. The Apostle Paul writes about this law in this way. 1 Corinthians 3, if, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Now some typical Christian responses to the call for faithfulness in the gospel. These are some of the things I've heard. You've probably heard them. You've probably said them yourself. I have. Evangelism's not my gift. That's, that's not me. And evangelism certainly is not my gift. It, it really isn't. I, I have a hard time sharing the gospel. And when we think that, in our intuition, and we hold it up against this mirror and this window and this parable, we have to remember here that what the master gave here was a deposit. It wasn't a gift. And everyone is given that deposit. And the power of the, the deposit is the gospel, not those who share it. As a matter of fact, Paul, to make sure this point came across uh, in, in Corinth, it was known for its, its, uh, its brilliant orators and its, and its uh, impressive speakers and so forth. Paul said, I came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling, and I proclaimed to you Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your faith would rest not in men, but in the power of God. It's the gospel that gets the job done. Many of us aren't very good with the gospel. Many of us aren't very good with golf. So what do we do? If we want to play golf, we take golf. Right? If we're not very good at quilting, we take, and we want to do it, we take quilting lessons. We learn it. But we assume that since God just hasn't dumped it on us, that, that we're, we're, you know, well, I'm, it's not my gift. I'm, I'm, you know, I write myself a permission slip. And you can do that. But you're going to find yourself in the position of the third place. And this is an encouragement not to. You, you can learn uh, how, to, how to be better, how to, how to inject the gospel. There's, there's a book called Gospel Fluency by a guy by the name of Jeff, Jeff Vanderstelt. It's just a little booklet. Very helpful. Gospel Fluency. And the, the, the subtitle is Speaking the Truth of Jesus into Everyday Life. There's another one that's called By All Means. And that's another very short booklet. How to use what you have to reach the lost. Is that not what this parable is about? That book, By All Means, by the way, is by Ray Comfort. So that's one thing. Evangelism is not my gift. Another excuse that I hear sometimes and give myself as well, what little I can do really wouldn't matter. What little I could do really wouldn't matter. And um, Edmund Burke is quoted as saying, nobody made a bigger mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. Do you think you notice something very peculiar about this parable? The master here was rewarding their faithfulness in little things. He said, because you have been faithful in a little thing, 
How many of you in charge over 1040? Well, how many of you in charge over Bartford? It's the little things. When sharing the gospel, the power of God and his gospel are all that matters. God is concerned about our faithfulness in little things. We have in our mind moving mountains, right? That that's something that's significant. But did you know that on the other end of that, that Jesus said he's talking about a faith in mustard seed? A little thing. Your little thing. God is interested. He delights. God, God delights in using small, weak things like us. And I think another thing we need to really remember um, that's not intuitive for us because we're kind of thinking that, you know, when we're sharing the gospel, there's got to be results. And there will be the results that God wants. But did you know, and we should remember, that God is glorified in the preaching of the gospel, whether anyone is saved or not. You're glorifying God just in giving the gospel. Paul, Paul opens his, his letter to the Romans by saying, by God whom I serve, whom I worship, in the preaching of the gospel. Not in converts gained, but just in preaching the gospel. God's glorified when you do that, when I do that. So I think there's some things that we need to just take home to hopefully in, in the story that will be in our hearts. And that is about there will be a time of judgment and accounting for our faithfulness with the gospel. Jesus said to expect that that's part of the preparedness, that there will be an accounting. Expect it. There will be those who are lavishly and disproportionately rewarded for their little service. There will be. And there will be those who suffer loss. And upon the return of the king, he will destroy his enemies. That's not his heart. He wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he takes no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. That's not God's heart. But there will be a judgment. And he will destroy his remaining enemies upon his return. A lot of, again, the assumption that we as Christians have because we don't read our Bibles and it's not informing our thought processes is that when Jesus comes back that he's going to be the suffering servant that he was before. Jesus is coming back as a conqueror to judge. We need to remember that. It's going to be a different scene, right? We need to keep that in our minds. Now, in this parable, in this mirror, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a faithful steward of the gospel? Are you regularly sharing it? Be encouraged to be even more faithfulness and obedience because God is a rewarder. He lavished rewards that are unspeakably disproportionate to our little service. Be encouraged in that. And if you're struggling on the other end, like me, and you find yourself more in the faithful steward category, fearful and suspicious of your king, 
first of all, repent of the lies which you believe in about the king and about his gospel. Repent of your thoughts of him as being obsolete. He's a giver, not a taker. Read your Bible. Ask God for faith to believe your king as he is. Trustworthy, extravagant, generous. In the time we're in now, or between the first two verses, between the time the king or the master gave him the commission and left, and the time he came back between Luke 19, 14 and 19, 15, that's today. And this isn't just an opportune time for Christians to do business with the gospel. It's also a time when the enemies of Christ, our King, can be converted to become the objects of His love and inheritors of eternal life. This is your opportunity, too. And if you are among those who have yet to bow the knee to the King, realize this, that this parable teaches us that you made yourself His enemy and He will ultimately slay you and consign you to hell for eternity because you've broken his law and defied his rule. And understand that you are already under condemnation and judgment. Your predicament is dire. It could not be worse. But also, understand that this is a king who died for his enemies so that his enemies might, through faith, become sons of God. Turn from your sins against him. Repent and believe and receive Christ as Lord and the forgiveness of your sins that comes only through his shed blood. It's a privilege and a blessing to be included in the king's business. You know what makes the Great Commission great? Is its cost and its reward. The costs are great, but the reward is disproportionately great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a clear picture of our returning King. He longs, Lord, to lavish extravagant rewards for little faithfulness. Oh, God, encourage us. Lord, help us to not look at the littleness of what we have but the greatness of what we've been given in the gospel and the greatness of your call, the fact that you are a giver. And Father, may those right thoughts inform us, Lord, to make us eagerly obedient, Father, to to doing your business until you return. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' name.